Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Today on the Smart Home Show, Richard and I are going to dig in on one of Richard's favorite topics, smart lighting. Particularly, we're going to talk about the two major options for making your lighting smart, which are bulbs and switches, as well as sharing what each of us personally prefers and uses in our own homes. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm Richard Gunther from the Digital Media Zone. Welcome to the Smart Home Show. I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host, Adam Justice from ConnectSense. Hey, Adam. Hey, how are you doing? I am well. It's been a while. We've been busy doing stuff. I think you're going to give us an update on what you have been up to. But on today's show, we're going to talk about smart lighting. And the two primary ways that you can integrate smart lighting into your home, either through smart bulbs or smart switches or connected bulbs and connected switches. Yeah, excited to dig in on this. And uh, to start our show, as always, uh, we're going to start with a question. So I think given everything going on right now, uh, I thought this was a good one uh, for Richard. So Richard, since you've worked from your home for a while, I guess my first question would be, how long have you worked at home? And what tips do you have for our listeners who may be new to working at home? <laughs> sure. Well, probably not so new now that we're yeah. about two months into this for many people. But yeah, I have worked from home for over 10 years now. And I think I've mentioned this in the past, has not really been all that different for me from a day-to-day -day perspective. But I guess the thing, that, like some of the things that I have learned over time, because when you first start doing it, it's really, really hard not to get distracted. It's really hard to uh, stick to a schedule. And so some of the things that I learned all along the way as I was starting was that it's a good idea to try to carve out a consistent workspace for yourself so that you're more or less always going to the same place to work. And maybe that's a shared space in, in your case, that's a guest room. In my case, it's a an office that I use for personal stuff too, but I know that when I'm here, this is where I work. And if I'm working, this is where I am. And that helps quite a lot for me. It also helps me avoid distractions. I know that's not always possible now. Your space may be a corner of the dining room that you had never used as an office before, and there could be other people home. But still try and identify what that space is and try and use it consistently. And what will happen over time is that others in the household will come to learn that when you're in that space, that means you're working. Unless those others in the household are two years old. Well, yeah, there's that. I mean, there's a certain <laughs> level of understanding that goes into that, right? <laughs> now, the other thing that I have been really bad at over the years is remembering to eat when I work. I know not everybody has this problem, 
but I get sucked into whatever I'm working on. And the next thing I know, I look up from my keyboard or my spreadsheet or my code and I realize, wow, it's three in the afternoon and I haven't taken lunch yet. I literally just did that yesterday. (laughs) Right. There you go. So that's something you should be really conscious of. Don't starve yourself. Don't neglect your own basic needs while you're working because it's easy to forget about stuff like that. Similarly, take a break every once in a while. I try to take one break in the morning and one break in the afternoon where I get up from my desk, walk out of my office, and if possible, go outside. Maybe I'm walking the dog. Maybe I'm just walking around the house trying to get away from the work that I've been doing. Maybe I make a personal call, but I don't do it in the same space where I work to just kind of freshen my mind a little bit. And one thing that I do when I am taking that break is I try to avoid getting sucked into a house project, like cleaning up something in the kitchen or dealing with laundry or stuff like that, because it's too easy to to let yourself get sucked into that. Now, look, I understand these are weird times and everybody kind of has to carry their own bit in the house. So this may not go over given your situation, but these are things that I've learned that help me. How about you, Adam? What other things would you add to that? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm, I'm newer to this. I I definitely agree with the kind of having a defined space. That's important for me. You know, I think I've matured a bit from my earlier working years where I was probably a little bit more of a workaholic. Um, I'm pretty good at kind of having that work-life balance. But one of the important aspects of that is, you know, when I leave my guest bedroom slash office now, like work is done and and that's kind of left that way. And so for me, it's important to have that kind of set up just be for work. And I really originally just went hunting in the house for flat surfaces where I could put down a computer and kind of lucked out on my wife's sewing table and making that my my desk. And it, <laughs> it's worked out for the most part. I kind of mentioned, uh, you know, being funny, but, you know, I do get interruptions from my two-year-old from time to time when I'm just working by myself or on like an internal call, not a big deal, but a couple times she's come in, like we were uh, doing orientation for a new employee and she's like <laughs> trying to get my attention. And I'm like, Oh, please. So that's not without its challenges, but you know, I think given the situation, people are pretty understanding of what's going on and, and know that everybody's in that situation. So, yep. yeah. And I, and I, I would say, you know, getting out, taking breaks, going for walks. I've been trying to do that at lunch and, um, things like that to, just to get some fresh air and kind of break up the day. Um, other one I'm, t- I'm testing, I kind of saw an opening here to test out a conversion st- sit-stand desk. So I bought this conversion thing. I can throw it in the in the notes, but I had always wanted to try the standing desk thing. And my desk at work, I don't think would accommodate that because I have some cabinets above it. Um, so I figured, hey, I'll try it. So that's been kind of an interesting experiment and, and testing out different things and doing the standing thing as well. So yeah, if you uh, if you want to submit a question for us to open the show, um, you can send that question on Twitter with the hashtag AskAdamAndRichard. 
So next, we wanted to get into some follow-up. Um, so on the last episode, we talked about um, potential automation projects, and Richard and I, you know, gave a list of things that we might work on. Well, I've been busy. <laughs> I've uh, I've gotten a bunch of projects done. Yeah, this list is impressive, Adam. Yes. So I, I'll, I'll explain a little bit, but uh, you know, I kind of started the one the one project I wanted to do and start with was. Um, automating our master bedroom closet um, with a hue motion sensor. And so I had had hue bulbs and the Lutron smart bulb dimmer switch, which I may refer to going forward as the Lutron button. But for me, it was important to still have that manual control um, and uh, just have kind of motion sensor activation. So this worked out really well, and it got wife approval, which is key. You got to get approval from those who live in the house with you. And so that kind of opened the floodgates for more motion sensors elsewhere in the house. So after she said, I like this, let's do some more of this, then I went on to do some other areas of the house. And, and one of the funny things she said was like, now I'm, tr she was, you know, you're trying to get your brain used to, I walk in a room, I don't have to hit anything. And she's like, we either need all motion sensors or no motion sensors. And I'm like, well, some rooms don't necessarily make sense for motion sensors because if you're in them long enough, then the lights will go off. But we at least talked about where it did make sense and then added one. Um, our master bathroom is a, a little bit different, but there's sort of a sectioned off area for the toilet. And so that was kind of with a single light in there. Um, so that was a good one to do, and I really like it for the night dimming feature. So after, I think, like 11 p.m., if you go in there, it comes on at like a 20% brightness. So that's really nice when you need to use the bathroom in the middle of the night. Yeah, that's a really nice feature, and that's not something that you can get just with any old sensor that you're going to throw in. So uh, that's something to consider, particularly for a bathroom. You don't want to walk into the bathroom in the middle of the night and have the lights come on bright. Yeah, I think Hue does this really well with that motion sensor. They know that that was kind of a killer app for this device. And so when you're setting it up, it literally kind of prompts you to put in that kind of function of like, during these hours, I want this scene to be run. During these hours, I want this scene to be run and in this specific room. So I really like their setup flow for that. It, it makes a ton of sense. Nice. The last one we did was our pantry. Um, so I got a little bit more creative in this one and I put in a color bulb. And so um, if you go into the pantry after 9 p.m., you get the friendly warning reminder of the lights turning red, which I guess freaked out my 10-year-old the first time he saw it. Um, he saw it in the early morning hours because he came in before 6 a.m. or something. And I'm like, we shouldn't be getting breakfast before 6 a.m. You should be in bed. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I thought that was kind of a cool trick. And, and certainly the, the pantry is a nice uh, place. And in general, the other thing I really like about these motion sensors is you don't have to worry about shutting the lights off. So they also have a auto timer for how long the lights stay on during the day and at night. So, you know, I think by default, it's a shorter duration at night and just nice that the lights automatically switch off for you with that. So uh, big fan of the Hue motion sensor and really like that Lutron smart bulb dimmer switch um, because it 
really solves that problem of, uh, you know, it used to be you'd have to have the conversation with your spouses and children and anybody else that's in your house of, we don't touch those light switches. You're not allowed to touch those <laughs> light switches. So if you're not familiar with it, one of the cool things about this product, I really think it's pretty clever. Um, they actually fix the light switch in place. There's this little bracket. You pop over an existing light switch. You don't have to do any wiring or anything like that. And you screw it in place such that you can't physically move the light switch into the off position. And then it uses this button that goes over top of it. And it allows you to toggle the lights on and off. And you can also turn it to dim the lights. So really clever design. And uh, to me, really solves this problem. I think this is one of the lighting industry's smartest solutions that's come to market in years. Lutron nailed this. And leave it to Lutron, the company that invented the rheostat dimmer, if you will. This is essentially that same form factor, but it's digital. And the stock is your old light switch. It's so, so smart. Yeah. Yeah, I really like it. So I have a couple more. Um, I think the only remaining kind of project of this type I'm going to do is a, a mudroom kind of going into our house. But I need to do some some wiring of some light switches because there's multiple lights in there. So um, we're going to get into that a little bit more. But uh, yeah, so I've got other projects on my list, but most of those require some electrical work. So I uh, haven't gotten up the, uh, the spirit to do... Uh, any sort of electrical just yet. Yeah, and that's where my head's been, Adam. Most of the projects that I wanted to take on required some amount of electrical manipulation, and I just haven't been up to it. I haven't been wanting to dive into anything that complicated right now. When I have free time, I just kind of want to veg and not be getting into anything complicated. So I, I think my... Most complex project I took on was installing a motion sensor down in the room that we aspire to use as a gym in our basement. So when you go in that space now, you don't have to worry about turning on or more importantly, in my case, remembering to turn off that light. It just comes on and then goes off after 15 minutes of no motion. And that has made a big difference just in general convenience, still not using it as a gym. One of these days I'll take advantage of that. But now I want to do the other side of the basement where the furnace and utilities are because we have the same problem there. And in fact, sure enough, we had our irrigation system turned on. The people were in to get that set up and they had to access the panel inside. And I went to bed that night and the basement light was left on and shining out the window as I got into bed. I'm like, ah, so that'll probably be something I tackle in the next week or two. Yeah. I think that's a good area to do, you know, this kind of stuff. I have a, a, we have a finished attic, which is a playroom for the kids and the lights always get left on up there. And so that's been on my project list too, to, to do some automation there. Well, these projects were kind of right in line with our subject matter today, which is switches and bulbs. We want to talk about the two main ways that you can implement smart lighting into your home. And They're very, very different. Like you can just go all smart bulb or you can go all switches or 
some hybrid combination thereof. And we're going to dive into how we're using it and different ways that you can use this technology in your home. But first, we're going to dive deep into the concepts and, and technology and options available in bulbs and in switches. And I'm going to start with bulbs. I think most people know I'm kind of a lighting freak. For some reason, I'm just intrigued by lighting technology. I have been for years and years. Light Fair is one of my favorite events to go to each year. And it's an industry show all about lighting. Sadly, like most conferences, it's not happening this year. But there's still so much going on in this space. And so let's start the conversation by talking about smart or connected bulbs. And I'm going to define these as some lighting source that can be controlled remotely. And it may or may not have any smarts to it. It may not really have any memory or processing power. It could just be that it knows how to be turned on and off remotely. So it's it, it really varies depending on the product, the technology, the price, and so on. So let's talk about the technology that enables this. Typically, smart bulbs are Bluetooth or Zigbee. If they're Zigbee, you would usually need a hub or a bridge to control them, or they might be Wi-Fi. Now, there are others, and I'll touch on them briefly, but these three things, Bluetooth, Zigbee, and Wi-Fi, are really the primary communication protocols used by smart bulbs. I think we saw Zigbee stuff probably first because early smart home products that included smart bulbs as a solution were really based on Zigbee. So we have stuff like Philips Hue, the Cree connected bulb, which you can still buy. It hasn't changed in something like seven years now. <laughs> the the Singlet bulb, Singlet has a huge line of products out. Most of them are Zigbee based. Sylvania Lightify, which is actually shutting down, but the Sylvania Lightify products were were Zigbee based and still are if you get a hold of them. All of these need some sort of bridge or some sort of hub to work. On the Bluetooth side, which doesn't really need anything but your phone to connect it, or more recently, many of them can connect directly to your Google Home or Nest Home devices, like the C by GE bulbs. Those are Bluetooth bulbs that when they first came out, they were an island. Nothing controlled them but the app. And now you can connect them directly with your Nest Hub and control them through any Google Assistant device in your home. Sylvania Smart Plus is Bluetooth-based, designed to work with HomeKit. Philips Hue now offers many of their different products, not only Zigbee, but also with a Bluetooth chip in them. So they're not coming out with a different version for each, but the newer ones support both Zigbee and Bluetooth, which is kind of nice. And then on the Wi-Fi side, you have probably the most well-known there is Lifex. They were one of the first smart Wi-Fi bulbs out there. The TP-Link Casa bulbs are very well-rated. Those are Wi-Fi-based. More recently, Wise has released smart bulbs 
very inexpensive. They're Wi-Fi based. Philips also purchased the Wiz brand, which was a German company, and their line of bulbs is also available at Home Depot exclusively now through Philips. They're Wi-Fi only. And Singled products are also available now in versions that support Wi-Fi, not Zigbee. So they're kind of doing it different from how Philips is doing it. They're actually releasing separate SKUs for their Wi-Fi versions of their bulbs versus the Zigbee versions. Are you confused yet? Good, because there's still more. You can get bulbs that are Z-Wave based. There are some bulbs that are six slow pan. Nobody's using that anymore. I don't know why anyone was doing that. There are even proprietary bulbs. At one point in time, Insteon had bulbs that only worked with Insteon. They don't sell them anymore. But there are other products out there that are proprietary. I'm curious. Uh, I think you've mentioned that you use Hue bulbs, but have you tried any of these others, Adam? I have. And uh, I have some LifeX bulbs, um, which I can talk about a little bit more later. But in terms of these technologies... You know, for a long time, Wi-Fi didn't make a ton of sense or it drove the cost up of these. Now, Wi-Fi chips are a lot cheaper, um, so it makes more sense to have that control in place. You know, I think Zigbee makes a ton of sense for light bulbs. It's a good technology for that. Like you said, you have to have some sort of hub or bridge in place. I'm not crazy about Bluetooth. Because I still think, you know, unless you're just wanting to control it with your phone, all the other use cases for controlling stuff, unless you can connect it to like a, a Google Assistant device or something like that, it's just kind of a weird a weird technology for this. So I'm not crazy about that one. Um, so yeah, I think Zigbee or Wi-Fi kind of makes the most sense and you know, in general, I would say kind of pick a brand and a, a type and kind of go with it. So the only reason I have multiple is just because I'm me and I try different things. I, I agree with all of that. I've tried multiples. I pretty much prefer Zigbee. I do differ from you on the Bluetooth versus Wi-Fi side of things, though. I have learned over the years that not everyone does Wi-Fi as well as ConnectSense. And so... Many times, my Wi-Fi bulbs that I'm testing fall off the network. Yeah. And I don't have that problem with Bluetooth, even though most of these bulbs aren't yet following the Bluetooth mesh standard. They're still doing their own thing. And now you have HomeKit that makes Bluetooth a little bit more bearable, depending on what your home setup might be. But I've never been a real fan of Wi-Fi and ultimately abandoned a short-term use of LifeX bulb in my home and went back to just making everything Philips Hue. The funny thing is I actually put my LifeX ones into lamps because I was having trouble with Philips Hue. I don't know if it was early on and I just didn't have a lot of Hue devices in the house to get a good enough mesh going. But I was having all kinds of problems with it where, 
you know, either the bridge would lose connection and then I couldn't control it using the Amazon assistant. So it would only work with HomeKit. It was being super flaky. Oh, so you've used Philips Hue then? Oh, yes. Yes. Because <laughs> no. <laughs> that is the experience with Philips Hue, unfortunately. Yeah. So I, you know, eventually this is for two bedside lamps um, in our bedroom. So eventually I, I put LifeX in place and it's been way more reliable. I would say I still sometimes have the weird issue where Amazon won't respond to commands and I have to go via HomeKit or whatever. So it's nice to have multiple ecosystems as a fallback mechanism. But um, yeah, none of them are perfect for sure. Now, certainly when smart bulbs came out, they started just as standard white bulbs that you could turn on or off and maybe you could dim them. They also typically come in either warm or daylight versions. And you may see the term warm. You may see the term soft. They're used interchangeably. Typically, that means either 2700 or 3000 Kelvin. They're used interchangeably too. So don't think that soft is 3000 and warm. It really depends on the brand and the store where you're buying them. Unfortunately, it actually depends on the store where you're buying them and the buyer's uninformed decision more than anything else, which is the sad truth. Many bulbs that are popular today are color changing. In fact, that's why I think uh, smart bulbs really got the market share that they did because color changing bulbs is something completely new. And when Hugh made that available, that really changed the market quite dramatically. And then they added and other companies have added white tuning to that. So now we see all different kinds of color changing options. I would say, you know, in my opinion, the the color changing thing is more gimmicky. Totally. Although I do like it in my pantry, <laughs> um, you know, example. But I do think the white tuning and the color temperature tuning aspect is a lot more effective than um than the color changing part and and sometimes you just have to get a color bulb to really get that effect but early on when i was got my first philips hue set um i experimented a lot with that and using things like the energize setting for working late at night and i really did find that you know the color temperature of the lights can have a, a really dramatic effect on just you know your your body and and how you perceive things. So um, it can be very powerful. Yeah, I think it can. And it, it it depends on a lot, right? It depends on the type of light that your body responds to. Not everybody's the same. It depends on the space where you're using it. Not every space can, can handle a really warm light or a really bright uh, white light with, say, 5,000 or 6,000 Kelvin that's going to end up making everything kind of washed in blue. Not you don't put that in a blue room. Whatever you do, don't put that in blue. So <laughs> then also those types of lights as you change them over the day can really help your body handle like sleep patterns better where you start warm, it gets cooler during the day, helps your attention span and then as you're getting later into the night, goes back to warm again and kind of gets your body into that mode where it it literally helps your body generate melatonin to help you sleep, which is a good thing. Now, we're also seeing filament bulbs come out now in 
smart bulbs, which is really cool because filament bulbs are good for all kinds of just really nice classic effects. They look nice around the house. They fit into many decors well. And of course, don't forget that you have bulbs that are almost designed for effect. Like the best thing I can think of is Lifex makes some new bulbs that have a bunch of different LEDs in them. And as a result, you end up with this ability to create like motion effects or blended color all in the same bulb or in the same fixture, which is kind of cool, but again, gimmicky. Yeah, I know my kids have had some fun in the past. Um, there's like an app where it'll change the colors and flash the hue lights to music. So you just put it on, give it access to your microphone, and it listens to the music in the room and kind of makes a disco effect and all that kind of stuff. So there's some fun things you can do with it, but not necessarily everyday applications. I think when I was a kid, I had a big wood box with a plexiglass panel on it and multicolor lights in the front that danced to music from Radio Shack for like 25 bucks. This is the modern version of that. <laughs> exactly. Now, you can get bulbs in many different forms. So standard bulbs, which are sometimes referred to as the A19 or A21 bulbs, by the way, if you're wondering, the A21 is the larger one. Usually a three-way bulb is an A21. It's bigger than the A19. The Edison bulb or vintage style bulbs that you might see. So those filament styles are typically in some odd little shapes. Oftentimes they look a little bit like radio tube bulbs, things like that. Those are kind of cool. You can get them now. You're usually able to get smart bulbs in BR30 or PAR38, even GU11 and, and other, or sorry, GU10, I believe it is, and other formats like that. That That is really helpful because a lot of times you have downlights or spotlights and stuff like that. Stop putting A19s in your downlights. Everybody, just stop doing it. They're not designed for it. It looks terrible. Use a directional bulb like a BR30 or a PAR38. Those are your standard flood and spotlight type things that you'd normally see. I actually have some BR30 hues that are not hooked up in my office. So this is a future project I need to do. I bought them when we got the house, and we have this really cool office space. And so my thought process, it's it's like a circular room very neat and interesting room. And my thought process was I wanted to be able to use some of the white tuning features of Hue bulbs in this office. And for whatever reason, they never got hooked up right or whatever to the hub. So um, I need to, you know, fix the light switch in there. I'm going to put one of those uh, Lutron buttons in there and get all those lights set up. And we also in our office have our Peloton for working out. So we thought that it could be their color bulbs too. It'd be great to have some cool kind of color setups for when you're working out or some fun things we could do with that too. So that's on my to-do list somewhere down the line too. Nice. I like that. I like that. I wish you could get more bulbs in par 38s. Those are like the big hefty often used outdoor format that are more typical in a spotlight form or actually they can be floodlights too but they're not diffused they they usually have a fresnel lens which is a clear glass lens with with a bunch of bumps on it to diffuse the light but 
make it much more focused instead of the softer light that you might get out of uh, something more like a translucent lens. So I- I'd love to see more of that come into play. I know that Ring just came out with some for outdoor use. And in fact, I have one from Ring to test. So I'm looking forward to trying that out. There's now a bunch of bulbs that you can buy that are designed like candelabra bulbs, the E12s, the small torpedo and flame tip bulbs that you might typically see in a chandelier. These are cool, but in my opinion, none of them are ready to put in your chandelier, particularly if your chandelier has fully exposed bulbs without any sort of shade or anything on them because they all have a big plastic base on them. So it's not like it's going to look like a typical chandelier bulb. It's still going to have this big, ugly plastic base. And that isn't appealing. I have learned to most home chief design officers. So, you know, I like the term. (laughs) Don't forget that there's all sorts of other things like light strips and panels. We talked about the things from, from LifeX. LifeX also puts out panels that you can use for light effects. In fact, I think you and I both recently saw that thing where uh, someone we knew hacked it to be able to show like pictures like Baby Yoda and stuff like that using the different LEDs that are in those panels. That's kind of cool. But again, it's it's gimmick. It's not as practical. And now we're starting to see outdoor fixtures. I mentioned the stuff from ring ring has a whole line of outdoor lighting fixtures that are uh, actually pretty impressive. I'm, I'm very happy with the stuff that they've put out so far. Now there's more than that. We're not going to get into it, but if you're looking in the pro side, there's built-in stuff that you can buy. There are art accent lights where you can actually tune the wavelength, not just the color. There's, the uh, theater lighting that you might see in a custom install theater. There's all kinds of stuff that goes into commercial buildings. There's there's a ton of smart lighting product out there that's just beyond what you can get at retail for homes. Now, you can get like totally synchronized outdoor lighting for the holidays if you want. That is something you can probably find an installer to do at your home. Um, I don't know about anyone else. I think that's kind of tacky, but, (laughs) but Hey, you know, it's there and it's actually probably been around longer than most of this stuff has been for consumers. I actually thought some of the, some of the smart like Christmas lights and things like that were pretty cool and there definitely some stuff going there, but my luck with how those things last, I was not about to invest the money in, in doing something like that. Yes, exactly. I say that. Even after I bought a box of the twinkly stuff, but I bought it at 50% discount. So that's how I justify it. It was the end of season sale, but yeah, I'm not convinced that stuff's worth an investment in a purchase. Uh, How long are they going to be around? How long are they going to work? That sort of thing. Now, all of this stuff is great, but you want to be able to integrate it with some sort of system. And most of these require an app to configure or control, but most of them can also be controlled by some other hub or an assistant. So when you're looking to buy stuff like this, you want to make sure that it works with whatever hub or whatever assistant you have. But 
I think Adam and I are pretty consistent in our advice that you should probably look for products that work with more than just the hub or assistant that you use in case you want to change that at some point in the future. Or the previously mentioned backup scenario. If one (laughs) of them for some reason isn't working, um, it's great, you know, it sounds silly, but it's great to, you know, be able to, okay, you know, hey, Amazon, that doesn't work. Okay, then you talk to Apple's assistant uh, as a fallback. It's it's just, you know, sometimes it can make you, you know, want to pull your hair out, but it's nice to have multiple paths to try to get there. That's good for us, not so good for our spouses. On the other side of things, we wanted to talk about the other option, which is uh, smart connected switches. These are typically an electrical device designed to control lighting um, by remotely manipulating the voltage on the line. So these are typically, you know, light switches and things like that, where you have to actually go in and replace it. We'll, we'll get into the different types more down the line. Technology stack for these is pretty similar. Z-Wave and Zigbee have been around for a long time, you know, in uh, controlled lighting. Wi-Fi and Bluetooth have become very popular as well because of the assistance. Uh, I'm going to stick to my earlier comments about Bluetooth, (laughs) especially when you're a wired device. I don't think Bluetooth makes a ton of sense. You know, for me, the use cases for Bluetooth were always more around uh, a device that was running on batteries. That's one of the things that Bluetooth is really strong in. You know, I just never really got the use case for wired Bluetooth devices. I am going to differ with you on this one again, saying that Wi-Fi switches, I think, make a whole lot of sense. To Again, to the extent that they're reliable. Bluetooth switches, to me, make sense because now you're adding a node to your Bluetooth mesh. And so to the extent that you're installing switches around your home, you're essentially basically laying out the mesh framework. I guess my my assumptions on that are based off of the Bluetooth of yesteryear, <laughs> not Bluetooth mesh. Right. And I, I just still don't think Bluetooth mesh is mature enough that I would uh, install a bunch of it in my walls. And then the last one is proprietary. So really big in this space for, for companies like Lutron and Insteon. And so, um, you know, this is one where... Uh, I think largely the the thought process here is by using a cheaper proprietary radio. Uh, I think usually a lot of these are based off of 433 or other technologies. They can save a lot of money on the individual radio that goes into the switch and then talk to a single hub or gateway um, to control a lot of them. So Versus where if you're putting like a Wi-Fi chip in each individual, you know, light switch, um, then you're having to bear the cost of that chipset in every device versus kind of the the Lutron or Insteon approach. So uh, any thoughts on kind of the strengths of these three technology subsets? Well, I think we'll get into this more when we talk about what we use ourselves, but you know, I've I've always been okay with the idea of a proprietary solution for lighting switches. And this has been the way it's been done, aside from Z-Wave and Zigbee, for literally decades in 
law, you know, smart homes that existed 20 years ago before you could go out and just buy something yourself at your local Best Buy or on Amazon. So I, I am, I, I think these, there's still a space for that proprietary solution for a lighting network. And, you know, you gave the examples of Luton and Instian. They're probably the, the most well known in this space, but there are many, many, many that play in that space. So in terms of types of devices here, um, you know, the most basic is like a standard switch. So just think of something that turns stuff on and off. Really dumb. The next one is a dimmer. So this adjusts the voltage level to a lighting load. Depending on the type of light bulbs and fixtures and things like that, you definitely want to be careful with this because not everything is dimmer friendly. And same, if you do put a dimmer in place, you're going to want to make sure the light bulbs you put in those sockets are are dimmer friendly as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's particularly true with, uh, uh, let's say you have a dimmer as a smart switch, but then you have an undimmable bulb, but you're like, well, I don't care because I'm just only going to turn it on or off. You're probably still going to have problems. Because the way that a lot of these dimmers gain power is to leach power. Like, this isn't like a normal dimmer switch. This thing needs power to function, to, to power the processor inside it, or, or the, the little bit of silicon that allows it to be controlled remotely always has to have some power. And so it's leaching that off of the line. And in doing so, it's actually sending a tiny little bit of voltage to the load, to the, the socket where that light is. And if you have an undimmable bulb there, it could cause it to flicker really badly. Yeah, I've seen some weird behavior in the past uh, in in dimming and light bulb combination. So definitely want to be careful there. Um, the next type is a fan controller. Um, so these are specifically designed to control motors. I don't know about you. I haven't seen anything you know, that I've been crazy about. Uh, I know Lutron came out with a fan controller a couple of years ago, and I was really hopeful it was going to be a better retrofit solution, but it really wasn't what I wanted it to be. <laughs> yeah, I I think we're seeing more and more of these where it's just one dedicated switch for one place in your lighting box that controls only the motor of the fan. I'd really like to get to the point where we see a combination controller that handles both the light and the motor in one unit in that light switch because so many fans are wired that way depending on what you have. If you still have a hard-wired light-fan combination, and many old homes still do. Yeah, and I think to me that's sort of what I would be really excited about because then you know, I do have one smart fan in my house, which it's okay. But, you know, the dream would be able to be able to switch out that wall socket for dumb fans. And then all of a sudden you can make your dumb fan smart. And I don't, I haven't seen anybody that's totally nailed that, uh, particularly with both the lighting and the fan control aspects of that. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. I am betting that we'll probably see that from zoos before anyone else. They seem to have some of the most innovative products out there right now. 
Um, the next one was uh, three-way remote and slave switches. Um, we can get into this a little bit more, but this is kind of one of the more complicated areas of lighting um, and smart lighting. I particularly like how Lutron handles this. Um, we can talk about that when we talk about our own setups. But w- what do you like in this kind of category of three-way stuff? What have you seen? Yeah, this is tricky. What I'm seeing is that, again, companies like Zoos, Innovelli, which was a, a company that had one of our favorite products from CES, even Wemo, these companies are coming out with products that are designed to work either as a regular switch or in a three-way environment. And some of them can even work with a, like, not just with another one of itself, but also with your old dumb switch and still be able to be a smart three-way circuit working in tandem with your dumb switch, which is awesome. I I think that's probably the way to go. I think we're going to see more and more companies releasing products that do that. Historically, you've had to buy a specific thing, often called a remote or slave switch, that would work in tandem with the uh, smart switch that you had already installed in the wall. If you had a three-way circuit, you also needed this remote switch. And it's just a hassle. Like it, It was a different skew. You had to wire it differently. It was very confusing. I think the stuff that we're seeing now is really slick. Yeah, I think this was one of the more complicated areas when I tackled some of my lighting was you have to figure out, all right, which are all the switches that control this one light? And then how do I, you know, set these up? And so it it led me to replacing more than I maybe initially wanted to because you wanted to take, you have to take care of those other switches as well to not screw things up. (laughs) It's funny that you say that. I've put off working on these different switches that are in my kitchen and hallway because they're all interlinked within these three and four way circuits. And there's like these two or three multi up light panels where I, I just, I don't even want to tackle it because I know that I'm going to have to replace like seven things all at once. My other thing that I got into too is that like, Okay, in an ideal world, you replace everything with a smart switch. But some of them are light switches we don't use very often, or maybe they control an outlet. It's like it would just be a waste of money to do it. So then not only does it involve replacing the main in a three-way, but it also you then, if I have normal switches that then become the square style, what is that called like a a decora right yeah so you go from a a normal flip switch to decora then you need to switch out all the light switches in that box to all be the same and there are some you can get some covers for light switches that are a mix but if it's like one in the middle you got to go all decora yeah yeah or start moving them around which is also a hassle yes so that's all to say when you're doing this as a homeowner you have to plan 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 and really think through some of this stuff otherwise you're going to get halfway through a project and be like oh crap i need you know some decora switches or different you know uh, faces and covers and that kind of stuff so you really do have to think through some of this and, and know what you're doing and what you want to do. Yep. Um, the other type here is kind of remotes and keypads. 
this can actually be one of those solutions for a three-way. Um, I think Lutron is pretty smart. They're, they have a remote that also is the same size as a Decora switch, and they have this really brilliant option for mounting that in the wall. So that's actually how they solve the three-way problem. Um, but those can also be, they, I believe they're called Pico remotes. Those can also be mounted by you know, anywhere in the house. Um, and there's some keypad options as well. Yeah, I love those. I think those are great. And, you know, on, on the keypad side, we've seen a couple companies come out with some interesting options. Again, typically trying to follow that Decora size model where it can take the place of a normal switch. Some of them are remote, like the Pico. I've seen a, a Bluetooth one from Avion that's, I believe, already available from, I think it is Halo Lighting. And Halo Lighting is now a Philips comp or a Signify company. But uh, nonetheless, that allows you to control scenes and control devices from, and oftentimes multiple, right from one light switch position, which can be really handy. Insteon has a product that I love and is probably my favorite Insteon product that they make. And that is a keypad that controls a load. It controls whatever would be in that position in the switch box, but then also has buttons that can control up to seven other scenes. So that's really handy because that not only allows you to control something with the switch that was there or in the position where that switch was, but then also act as a three-way or a scene controller to do other stuff in your house, which can be really, really powerful. And then one other new newer category was these kind of smart controls. So these are more, they have like onboard brains. So these were some things like C by GE uh, noon, Oro, and Brilliant. And I've seen some of these at various shows and things like that and been pretty impressed with what's possible with some of these different form factors. And what really makes these stick out is, well, <laughs> no pun intended for Brilliant, but uh, what what makes these kind of stand in a category of their own is that unlike something that's just responding to a signal that it hears that you've sent it, and then it controls something. These actually often have processors and memory in them where they may be able to maintain schedules on board. So once you've programmed them, you don't need a system anymore. They are your system. They are the hub or the bridge, if you will. The C by GE bulbs can be controlled by a schedule that's built onto the C by GE switches. It's really slick the way they've set this up. Similarly, the Noon and Oro products, Noon has since been purchased, I believe, by Savant, but Oro is a product that you can buy, and I'm testing one of those right now. These have tiny little screens on the Decora size plate that functions as the switch, and the brains inside it actually let you do things like not only have schedules and create scenes and control other things, but maybe change color temperature, things like that. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later. So I'm, I'm excited by most of these. I think the trick here is getting the form factor right. Of those that you mentioned, I think Oro 
is probably the least offensive. It doesn't look horrifically different from a normal Decora Switch, except that it's all black instead of all white or some other color. These others, man, I don't know what they were thinking with their industrial design, but I did not like them. Yeah, I think my other kind of pause on some of these too was it's almost like another adding another ecosystem to the mix and so then it becomes another place to program things it becomes another place that you have to have device compatibility with um and so and some of them just didn't support enough stuff that i'd want to control so that was what gave me pause on some of these as well yep um, in terms of different forms for these, so most of them are decora size paddles we talked about. Uh, any thoughts on, on that? Yeah, I think we're in the reality now that if you want smart switches, you kind of have to figure out how to convince your spouse that that's okay. That decora switches today are different from the 70s-esque paddles that we used to see years in, you know, in the eighties and these big chunky things that just looked out of place. I think they've, that size has become more commonplace. Certainly, you know, any plate that you're going to purchase, if you like highly stylized or art formed plates for your switches, you can get them in Decora stuff. Now, I think sometimes they're just called GFCI because there, it also happens to be the same size as a GFCI compliant outlet, which would be that outlet that has the ability to kick off if it is shorted in any way. And I think, you know, a lot of the reasoning for this is that if you're going to have a device that's controlled separately um, or remotely, that standard like old light switch didn't make a lot of sense. And so you had to go to more of a push button where you know, it would always be in the same physical state. It just made a lot more sense for controlling these kinds of things. Yep. Now, you can still buy the the old style flip switches. They're just not as common. Yeah. Who has smart flip switches? Well, I think you can get a bunch of the Z-Wave versions. Like Jasco still makes the flip switch or the toggle switch for pretty much all of the brands that they make. So you might see that in GE. You might see that in Honeywell. Insteon has one. I don't know if they'll continue to make it. It's, it isn't up to date with the rest of their technology, but I think most of the manufacturers realize that there is still a segment that doesn't really quite like those bigger things. And they're trying to address that as best they can here. The other one you had in here was Decora Buttons, uh, another common kind of form factor for these. Yeah, and we recently saw a new entry here from Akara. This is the line that's HomeKit compatible, and uh, I believe it's actually made by Xiaomi. And it's a really inexpensive push-button switch. They have one and two-load versions, so you could potentially have one switch control two different electrical loads in a one switch form factor which is kind of nice yeah i mean it depends what you want it you know this is all this this all comes down to i think style and decor yeah i think the other thing we wanted to mention here too is that there's also some plug-in options so if you're controlling a lamp 
I know there are some form factors that are a smart uh, dimmer for a plug. Uh, I believe Lutron has one of these. Um, or just any standard smart plug would work in this space. Or maybe a nice in-wall plug from a company like ConnectSense, shameless plug. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. That's totally fair. <laughs> and um, actually, I, mean, we haven't, I haven't really talked about this anywhere, but we actually have a kind of experimental product that we have coming up uh, in the near future, um, which is going to be a new smart plug from us that is entirely kind of lighting lamp focused. So the the thought process here is more just kind of for the mass market and somebody that this is what they want to use. It's by far one of the top use cases for smart plugs. And so we kind of had the thought process of like, let's throw out all the other kind of use cases for a smart plug and just treat this like a lighting controller. And what would we do differently? So, you know, more to come on that, but that's something we're working on right now. That's kind of cool. You know, something that you didn't discuss yet is the idea of an in-wall mini controller that allows you to keep the existing switch that's already there. These are becoming more and more popular as additional companies make them. I know Fabaro's had one for a long time. A bunch of Z-Wave manufacturers make these. Insteon has these. And the idea is that you have this tiny little thing that has inputs and outputs and then sensors that tie into the wires that actually attach to your existing wall switch. And based on what they're sensing in the position of that wall switch, they can make that switch behave as if it's a smart switch. It's confusing as anything to wrap your head around. It does take some rewiring and a fair amount of space in the box behind your switch. But if you have wall switches that you really like, let's say you have an, a very old Tudor home and it has some of the old-fashioned push-button wall switches where they they look like little stems that you push one in and the other one comes out. And you can actually find these online now for uh, like retrofit uh, design solutions on places like Rejuvenation and, and sites like that. But you could make those switches smart, which is pretty cool. So last topic for this, of course, is integrations. So, um, you know, most of these require some sort of app uh, to configure or control them. Um, most of them are controllable by a, a hub or an assistant. Um, so most of them work with the major uh, assistants, depending on the line. And um, generally, there's more integration opportunities here for switches than there are for bulbs. So it depends on kind of what ecosystem you're looking at. That's probably more information than you ever thought you'd hear about switches and bulbs. But next up, we're going to talk about what our preferences are and how we're using these technologies in our homes. Before that, though, we're going to take a quick break in case we have sponsors and then we'll be back with the smart home discussion. All right. So I think we hit on this a little bit in the earlier discussion, but uh, I thought this was a great time to dive in and talk about kind of what team are we on? Team Switch, Team Bulb, uh, a little bit of both. So Richard, where do, you, where do you stand here? I'm Team Switch, but I recognize that there's a, kind of a place for each of those. 
So I think switches are best when you have built-in fixtures, when you have multiple lights that are controlled together. For example, in my family room, there are six downlight fixtures with floods in them. And I don't want to have to replace all of those with smart bulbs. On the other hand, in that same room, I have wall washers. And wall washers are the kind of lights that are designed to throw light against a wall, usually for accent, maybe on lighting or maybe on uh, artwork. We have some on our mantle. And for those, I've put color bulbs in because color bulbs look kind of cool and I can use them for different effects. So it's a combination of the two, really. I have Insteon switches and keypads throughout my home. Probably no surprise to anyone. I love Insteon stuff. I love Insteon stuff so much that I occasionally work for them now. Insteon keypads, like Pico remotes, um, are one of my favorite types of controls because it gives me physical remote control of other switches and devices around my home. Uh, just kind of the same way that some people use Picos. And, and I do have some Picos around my house as well. Now, when I'm thinking about use cases for smart bulbs, it really comes down to color control. Do I want to be able to change the color or the color temperature? This is great if you have kids' rooms. This is great for a media or theater room. It's good for for white tuning for an office or for a kitchen. In fact, I use these in my kitchen. I have white tuning hue bulbs in my kitchen, and I, I really like that because they change color through the day. I have different automations set up in HomeKit that change the color of those. And then I also use some light strips. I've been installing light strip accents around my house. And one place where I'm in progress on that is converting my old halogen energy hog heat lamp under cabinet lights. <laughs> Cause I swear those things put out so much heat. It's ridiculous. I'm trying to convert those to light strips. And so I have a bunch of different products that I'm testing for that. In all likelihood, I'm probably going to end up converting them to Philips Hue light strips because of those I've tested, really the Philips Hue seems to be the best in terms of brightness and, and, uh, true colors and so forth. So that's, that's kind of what I'm doing with smart bulbs. Now, some people like bulbs because they're cheaper than switches. You know, a smart switch is usually going to start around 50 bucks for a good smart switch. You can find more inexpensive ones, usually Wi-Fi, out on Amazon that work with the assistants. They may only work with the assistants. They may not work with anything else. So check that. And I'm not a big fan on of buying inexpensive off-brand products. I, that has never gone well for me. And I don't generally recommend it to people. But there are alternatives out there if you're looking for something that's less expensive. I, I am still struggling with the switch versus bulb problem, right? You talked about Lutron's smart bulb dimmer. 
that product is probably the first one to effectively solve the problem of the switch potentially overriding the bulb. And that problem happens in two different directions. Or or I guess I I would say it can happen. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair way of putting it, right? Like if you have a smart bulb in a lamp that is plugged into an outlet that is controlled by a wall switch, very common scenario. You flip that switch, you can't turn the bulb on with your app or ecosystem or whatever because there's no power to it. But it works the other way too. You can have a smart switch controlling that lamp and someone turns the lamp off at the lamp. Right? That's a good point. Right? So this problem is not going away yet. But there are companies that are trying to solve this. Lutron's solution, I think, is one of the best. There are lots of remotes and buttons out there that you can buy to, to try and address this problem. The Harmony Pop, the Philips Hue button and dimmer and tap that they've come out with to control hue lights, the Lutron Pico, all of these things are designed to help solve this problem in some way. None of them really do it perfectly, but it helps us get around them. There are lots of, frankly, ugly and clunky solutions that are designed to either lock or cover your switch. Sometimes they put a a big honking control over top of the switch and it doesn't match the other switch. Don't ever put them on a two up thing. That just looks horrible. But I mean, this is a problem that still has to be addressed. Again, I look at companies like Oro Brilliant and Innovelli where they're coming out with switches that can control smart bulbs. What they're basically doing is they turn off the voltage control it's always on. And when you control the switch, what you're really doing is you're sending commands to the bulb. In terms of clunky solutions, you missed a, probably a very popular one, which is uh, tape. <laughs> probably a lot of people just put tape over the light switches. Many, many, many homes have tape over light switches. Yes. You don't, do you? I never did. No. I, I And it just it made me want to avoid those. And, and that's really where that, that Lutron smart bulb dimmer you know, finally was a good enough solution that I felt I could put bulbs in more places. Right. Okay. So Adam, what team are you on and what are you doing in your home? So I'm also team switch, uh, with some of the same caveats. Um, so in my house, I have mostly Lutron Cassetta for switches. Um, these are mostly on the first floor of my house. A while back, I was like, I've covered most of the first floor. I, you know, I, what what would it take to do a little bit more? And the answer is a lot more than I thought as I started <laughs> counting light switches. <laughs> and sort of to the same problem that we talked about earlier, it's not as simple as like, okay, I want to replace this one light switch. Is you then have to do something with everything else in the box. So someday I will get all the ones that I want to wire downstairs um, done. And, and that'll probably be the first kind of place that's totally done in my house but um so far it's been mainly focused on like the kitchen and um you know some of the areas we use the lights the most what's particularly nice about those caseta switches is that if you're looking for a dimmer the caseta dimmer doesn't need a neutral wire and yep one of the challenges in replacing lighting switches in many older homes is that not all switch boxes have that white 
wire, that, that neutral wire, in addition to a wire that carries the, 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 the voltage into the box, the current into the box, and then that wire that carries that voltage from the switch to the fixture. So that three wire solution isn't always an option. And if you only have two wires, this can solve that problem for you. Yep. And uh, mine are all cassetta dimmers. So um, worth mentioning. And, you know, I think the equation I've done mostly is when it controls multiple lights, I typically put in a switch. Um, you know, if you're trying to figure this out for yourself, I would say even just do the math. Look at what will it cost you to buy, say, you know, five Philips Hue bulbs versus one switch. Often that math makes sense in the direction of a switch. Um, and especially when you start to talk about like BR30s and more expensive light bulbs, the connected versions of those can be very pricey. So um, controlling a bunch of those kinds of lights uh, often way cheaper to just replace the switch. I mentioned this earlier. It's a more intrusive install process. So, you know, that's why some of my projects have gone undone because, you know, I don't feel like doing the, you know, trip to the basement uh, to turn off electricity. Or there are many people in my house all the time right now. So if I have to turn off the electricity, they might get grumpy about it. And figuring out just which circuit, like depending yeah. on how well your circuit box is labeled at just Finding the right circuit can take 20 minutes. <laughs> Side note, I have seen that smart circuit breaker. That thing is super cool, and that would solve this problem. But uh, install getting that installed, I don't know that I would do unless I was building a new house. So, <laughs> yeah. But that would be a cool way to solve that because then you wouldn't have to go into the basement to uh, switch off circuits. And then, you know, if these were totally a lot cheaper, the, the Lutron Cassetta ones, I think, run about $50. Is that right? Correct. And that's pretty standard for most smart dimmers. Yeah. So if they were cheaper, I would put them in more places. Uh, if I were building a new home, I would probably go more all in on this. So for right now, it's kind of a, a piecemeal. I kind of do it little by little where it makes the most sense. Um, I have seen an implementation where these Lutron Cassetta were installed in absolutely every light switch in a space. And it was very cool. It may or may not have been a Apple location in New York where they do demos of smart home stuff. But. <laughs> I think that's cool. I don't think it's always necessary, right? Like I no. initially, when I moved into this house, replaced the light switch and the fan switch in the powder room. And after a while, when I needed that light switch for something else, I thought, well, why are they I'm never going to want to remotely control that. Why do I even have them in there? They look cool, yeah. but it's not practical. Yeah. That was actually the place where in that in the aforementioned space that I was like, "Really? In the powder room? Like we we really need a smart light switch here. Just put a motion sensor in instead. As far as bulbs, I think these are the good solution where you're only changing out one, maybe two max in a single fixture. So for me, these are lamps with a single bulb. I mentioned earlier, we have the, uh, the LifeX in our um, master bedroom. There are individual lamps on both mine and my wife's bedsides, kids' rooms and lamps. 
Um, I really like this for the application as a it doubles as another nightlight for kids. Yeah. So at night we just set it to 10, 20 percent dim and then they have another light source in their room. Um, so that works out really well, you know, for stuff where it's like a closet, bathroom, laundry room, just using those dimmable white bulbs works fine. They're a lot cheaper. I even saw this crazy deal on Woot. Uh, by the time I had seen it, they were all sold out. We were like refurbished hue bulbs like a week or two ago. Right. It was a really good, really good deal. And they got, they got uh, sold out super quick. So yeah. And then the color temp worth mentioning, like early days in LEDs. My wife was not a fan of LEDs because, because of the color of most of them. That is mostly, I would say a solved problem now. But that is the nice thing about some of the color bulbs and the the temperature changing ones is that you can find a color temperature that you like or that makes the most sense for that particular room. Right. When we were playing around with the pantry, that was kind of nice, too, to find a color that worked really well and kind of did the lighting didn't look too weird in there. So um, I think that can be a nice thing. One thing I did want to mention when thinking about this, and maybe you have some thoughts on this, um, bulb state can be a problem if you lose power. <laughs> yes. I I had this happen when we had Philips Hue bulbs in our room where power went out overnight and all of a sudden it's 3 a.m. You didn't realize that you had lost power and then it came back on. But then when your lights come on at 100%, which is the default after a power outage, at least for those Philips bulbs, um, that can be pretty jarring at 3 in the morning. It can. It can. And, you know... From the beginning, Philips didn't allow you to do anything about that. For years and years, when your Philips bulbs came on, they just always turned on full. Now, since then, they have upgraded all of their bulbs so that you can now set what that default power on capability is. Unfortunately, if you still have some first-gen Philips Hue bulbs, those will flash briefly in that all-on mode until they then reset to whatever your preferred was, which might be off. It might be whatever the last setting was. You can define how you want that. But that's a nice feature. And Lifex from the start had that feature. You could define what happens when the power comes back on. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was part of the process of why Philips Hue left my bedroom and LifeX entered was because of that problem. <laughs> that makes complete sense. So yeah, I think that's about it. Where uh, where it comes to uh, you know where we fall on this uh, light switch versus bulb thing. There's a lot to consider, and I think the bottom line is it depends on how you're going to use them, how much money you want to spend, what your ultimate uh, intent is. And so hopefully we've provided you with some information that you can use to now go forward and, and make some informed decisions. Before we get out of here, we love it when we have questions to answer. And you put out a call for questions right before we recorded today, Adam. So we have one. We actually have two, but we're just going to tackle one now. And, uh, oh man, I, you know, I, I had to pick this one because this gives us an opportunity to be smart asses for maybe just a minute if we want to be. So on Twitter, HomeKit Geek asks, when will Ring deliver their promised HomeKit support? 
it's worth noting that he follows that with a winky <laughs> emoji. So yeah, yeah, Richard, when when's that going to happen? Um, never. I I don't. <laughs> I mean, I honestly, you know, it's it's become the running joke in the industry now, right? Literally three years ago, they said we're going to support HomeKit with some of our devices, and. For a moment, we even saw their products in the HomeKit device-supported database. I don't think they're there anymore, and they've stopped talking about it. You have occasionally brought up this Ring account, or sorry, this uh, Twitter account that posed that same question. Yeah, I think the whole account is just, does Ring support HomeKit yet? And uh answer still no. Yeah, I mean, and even like when they were acquired by Amazon, there was even some some like, oh, no, now they're never going to support HomeKit. And they were like, no, 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 we're still working on it. It's still going to happen, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate. I actually bought my Ring doorbell after running into some folks from Ring at an Apple event and, you know, feeling like this is happening and this support is going to happen. You know, supposedly there's a MFI chip in that Ring Pro doorbell that I have on my front door. So I'm not mad at them about it. I've since bought other Ring products. It's, you know, it doesn't support HomeKit per se. But, you know, I think you mentioned in here, you know, use HomeBridge or something like that in the meantime. Yeah, I mean, I've never been a real big fan of depending on HomeBridge or, or banking on it as a solution for pulling stuff together because it could always go away. But if this is something that you really want and it's frustrating you, this might be an inexpensive solution to solve that problem. I, I have spoken with Jamie, the founder of Ring, about the HomeKit integration specifically. And he's, you know, he's very coy about it now because he realizes that it's something that people want. And at the same time, I suspect from the answers that he's given me that they're not able to get what they want from Apple to integrate Ring into HomeKit the way they want it to be. And so they're, they haven't moved forward on it or made the movement forward that they expected to by now. Similarly, we thought at some point in time, maybe we'd get third-party support for some of these newer Ring products, like their their new lighting products. They only integrate with Amazon's Assistant. Surprise! But, I mean, I've, I've spoken with Mike Harris, who is the person they brought in from Zonoff as the integration expert. Like, this company is all about integration. They know how to do this. He has been quoted saying, it's something we're interested in pursuing, but that hasn't happened yet either. So I get the impression that these days, Amazon is probably trying to keep them focused on making everything work with Amazon, first and foremost. Well, and maybe some of these next generation protocols will be what they kind of kick down the field to of like, eh, we'll just fix this problem, you know, in the future stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think from what I've heard, the the HomeKit video spec was not 
a walk in the park. And so I think that's probably where a lot of this got hung up and, you know, we'll see where it goes. But, you know, I think the, the doorbell and some of Ring's other products work fine as a kind of an island that doesn't talk to everything else. I don't know that there's a ton of integration I'd want to do. And if I needed to, I could do it through one of those other ecosystems. So yep. I'm not super mad about it. If it, it may happen someday, we'll be surprised, but we're not, be- <laughs> we're not, we're not placing any bets here. Yeah. I, I think it's worth mentioning again, just if you really, really, really want this, take a look at Homebridge. It'll do it for you. It's surprisingly good, actually. All right. Uh, if you have a smart home question, you can send it our way using the hashtag Ask Smart Home Show, and uh, we'll pick a question to include in every show. So thanks again to HomeKit Geek for sending one this way. All right, Adam. I think we are finally done with this marathon episode, catching up on weeks of being away from the microphone. Where can people find you if they want to hear more from you out on the internet? Yeah, you can find me uh, at Adam Justice on Twitter and uh, keep up with everything my company's doing. Look for that new lighting product I mentioned at ConnectSense.com. How about you, Richard? You can find me on Twitter at Richard Gunther. I'm also in, on Instagram as Richard W. Gunther. Couldn't get Richard Gunther. I was too late to that one. I know. And if you're interested in what I've been writing about lately or my other shows, check those out at thedigitalmediazone.com. Now, the Smart Home Show is part of technology.fm, which is a great collection of tech-focused podcasts, including Home Tech FM, The Food Tech Show, and Home On. And Smart Home .fm is where you can find our show notes and details about each episode. You can send us feedback at feedback at smarthome.fm. Oh, did you catch it? That's new. Feedback at smarthome.fm if you have feedback for us. And you can find our show in Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and anywhere else that you find podcasts. Do us a favor. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a rating or review and tell a friend. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. 